You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A 2018 presidential finding authorized extensive CIA cyber operations against Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Wattpad may have been breached. The SEC asks its registrants to take steps to protect themselves against ransomware. A free VPN's databases are found exposed. Joe Kerrigan on privacy versus security on Android devices. Our guest is Chris Deluzio from Pitt Cyber on election security. And Beijing woofs in the direction of London over the UK's Huawei ban. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 15th, 2020. A 2018 presidential finding authorized the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency to conduct offensive cyber operations against a range of foreign targets, according to a story running exclusively in Yahoo!, Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea figured prominently on the target list, unnamed former government officials said. The activities authorized extended beyond intelligence collection to include actively disruptive measures and influence operations. The finding was sufficiently broad to encompass organizations credibly believed to be acting on behalf of or in cooperation with hostile intelligence services. The active measures the CIA was authorized to take included actions against financial institutions, kinetic effects against infrastructure, and hack-and-dump operations in which documents are taken and posted when and where they could be expected to influence opinion. The people speaking on background for the story told the reporters that Langley had been to some extent divided on the advisability of offensive cyber operations, but that the CIA had sought such authority for years— going back at least two administrations. They had expected both Presidents Bush and Obama to sign a relevant finding, but neither did. They had not expected such a finding from President Trump and were pleased when it was signed, or more than pleased. One of the unnamed former officials told Yahoo's reporters, quote, people were doing backflips in the hallways, end quote. Former CIA General Counsel Robert Edinger who did speak on the record, had no knowledge of the 2018 finding, but he did confirm that there had for some time been two camps at Langley, those who saw restraint in cyberspace as prudent and valuable, and others who sought authority for more offensive cyber operations. Yahoo says that neither the CIA nor the National Security Council responded to their questions. Bleeping Computer reports that popular storytelling site Wattpad may have been hacked for a 270 million record database. The information, formerly for sale, is now being offered for free in various hacker sites. Its authenticity is under investigation, and Wattpad has brought in security assistance to help it run down what the incident actually amounts to. 
Researchers at Comparatech say they've found that Hong Kong-based VPN provider UFO VPN left a database of user logs and API access records exposed online without passwords or any other form of authentication to protect it. VPN Mentor says it found an even more extensive exposure. It wasn't just UFO VPN, but six other brands as well. Fast VPN, Free VPN, Super VPN, Flash VPN, Secure VPN, and Rabbit VPN. They all appear to share a common developer. The data VPN Mentor says it found exposed include PII of some 20 million users, and it runs to such items as email addresses, clear text passwords, IP addresses, home addresses, phone models, device ID, and other technical details. The seven apps advertise themselves as both free and no-log, no-log meaning that they didn't collect any personal information, but that seems not to be true. The seven apps are connected in a number of ways. Their branding tends to be similar, and several of them promise military-grade security. We're not sure either what military-grade means, but it probably doesn't extend to leaving an Elasticsearch server flapping in the virtual breeze. VPN Mentor thinks they're all white-labeled versions of the same product. In any case, they use the same Elasticsearch server, they're hosted on the same assets, and they use a single recipient for payments, DreamFi HK Limited. VPN Mentor says, There are a lot of excellent free VPNs out there, but in the case of these seven, you apparently get what you pay for. The U.S. elections will be here before you know it, Oh, heck, let's see here. Hey, Siri. Yes? How long till the U.S. elections? It's 111 days until then. Okay. Chris Deluzio is policy director at the University of Pittsburgh's Institute for Cyber Law, Policy, and Security, also known as Pitt Cyber. He joins us with insights from their recent report titled Ensuring Safe Elections. Well, I think the situation in the world right now where we're confronting a public health crisis and we in many states are dealing with primary elections and across the country have a general election in November that includes the election of the president, all members of the House of Representatives, many senators, many state officials, presents a very unique set of challenges. And many of the solutions to those challenges require a serious infusion of resources largely to the state, and to be really precise, to local officials of the county or in some places, city or town level. And without those new resources, uh, and really that ought to come from the federal government given the national scope of what we're confronting, uh, we fear that election officials who are, again, predominantly local and state folks won't be equipped to protect our democracy and ensure that voters are able to vote safely and securely come November. Hmm. What, what is the spectrum that you see going from state to state? Is, is, are there states that are much better off ahead of the pack when it comes to these sorts of things and others that need to catch up? Well, I think states that already are doing uh, vote by mail as a primary method of voting are, of course, well suited to give people the best chance to vote safely during a public health crisis. But then there are a whole lot of states that aren't the five that primarily vote by mail that also offer no excuse absentee voting or no excuse mail voting. And so they're also in a good position, but of course the devil's in the details. 
are those states affirmatively sending applications or ballots? Um, states that have things like automatic voter registration, where you're capturing updates to people's addresses if they interact with a government agency, say the DMV, for example, those states have likely cleaner and more accurate voter registration lists and thus can make a pivot or transition to a mail voting system uh, perhaps more quickly. And so they're in a better position. And, and that's a growing number of states, but not the majority yet. Why not uh, shift to things like uh, voting online? Why the emphasis on voting by mail? Well, the unfortunate truth is that online voting just is not secure and ready for prime time. There's, frankly, consensus among computer science experts and others who have studied online voting and show that the unique challenges of an election where voters have to be, their votes are anonymous, um, that online voting presents too many risks and the hacking in particular vulnerabilities are too substantial to overcome. So it's not a viable option for secure elections. And so we have to instead look at what we, what technologies and options we have. And those really are to adapt our current voting system, which is a mix in the states of voting in person and voting by mail to the public health crisis. And for most states, that means expanding the ways in which voters can safely vote from home, um, while also making sure we have good, reliable, and safe options for voters to vote in person who may need to. That's Chris Deluzio from Pitt Cyber. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has issued a ransomware warning to its registrants, which include broker-dealers, investment advisors, and investment companies. The SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations refers the registrants to applicable CISA alerts, the Drydex strain is particularly called out, and suggests that they pay particular attention to incident response and resiliency policies, procedures, and plans, awareness and training programs, vulnerability scanning and patch management, access management, and perimeter security. CNBC, which has been watching Chinese state media closely, says that Beijing is advising itself through those media to retaliate in a public and painful way for Britain's ill-founded decision to boot Huawei from the UK's 5G infrastructure. The state-run Global Times put it this way, waving both carrot and stick, quote, It's necessary for China to retaliate against UK, otherwise wouldn't we be too easy to bully? Such retaliation should be public and painful for the UK, the paper wrote, thus the stick. And here's the carrot, quote, But it's unnecessary to turn it into a China-UK confrontation. The UK is not the US, nor Australia, nor Canada. It's a relative weak link in the Five Eyes. In the long run, the UK has no reason to turn against China, with the Hong Kong issue fading out, end quote. So, London... Wise up, you're not as important as the U.S., Australia, or Canada. Maybe a northern hemispheric New Zealand. So the carrots there, we don't want no trouble, but they're actually kind of whacking Her Majesty's government with it. Hong Kong's old news, London, and you've lost that one anyway. So wise up and do business with Shenzhen. We paraphrase, of course. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta, 
Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, interesting article came by. This is from the folks over at Android Central uh, online mm-hmm. website written by Jerry Hildenbrand. And the title is Security Isn't Privacy and You Can Have One Without the Other. Yep. Uh, it's a uh, titillating uh, title there, Joe. What, what's your take on this uh, article? I like this article a lot. It is. Uh, it embodies everything I like about Android and everything I dislike about it. Um <laughs> And Jerry makes a good point here that Android is one of the most secure operating systems ever. And the reason it's the most secure, one of the most secure operating systems ever is because it's open source. It has a lot of uh, eyes, eyeballs looking at the code. There are people looking for exploits. And when they find the exploits, they sell them to Google, who then patch the exploits uh, or vulnerabilities, mm. rather, not the exploits. And Google does a very good job of keeping this operating system secure because it is so integral to their business model, right? They need right. to make sure that that by secure that only uh, the intended people have access to the device. Yeah. Um, now that's where privacy comes in, because one of those <laughs> intended people is Google. <laughs> and and uh, Jerry points out in this article that you are making an economic decision to trade your data. Uh, to Google, and he makes a point that Google doesn't sell your data to third-party providers, but they mm. use that data to build a uh, a profile of you that is remarkably accurate, 
I was going to say it too. Maybe a distinction without a difference in this case. Well, perhaps. I don't. I don't think. I. I think it's more. More of a distinction. I think there's more of a difference. Yeah, they're going to. You know, they can break down their demographics like we've never had the opportunity in the history of in human history <laughs> to break down demographics like this before. Right. Yeah. And target ads at such a group of people that are interested in a particular that we almost that we get the highest return on the advertising dollars that we possibly can. Okay. So from the business standpoint, it's a really good proposition. The question is, do you as an Android user want to be targeted with that level of specificity? Mm -hmm. Um, And if, if not, maybe you make a different, a different selection. Yeah. Maybe you no, make I, Jerry makes some good points here. I mean, you look at the apps like Google Photos, which is something that I use. And, right. And boy, the functionality of that is it's great. It, it really is an enhancement over other photo apps that I've used to be able to, to, to just go in and do a, a plain text search for anything. You know, dogs in the snow. Boom. Right. All, the, all my all pictures, pictures of dogs of your in, dog the in the snow. snow. Right. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. But uh, like you said, the... The trade-off there is that you're, I'm giving them access to those photos to do machine learning training and all the different sort of things that they want to do with them. Uh, yeah. But I've made that decision that it's worth it. Right, exactly. And, that, and that's really the important thing is we have to make that decision consciously, right? And yeah. a lot of us don't do that. A lot of us just go, ooh, cool, and it's free? Yeah, it, kind of. <laughs> it's kind of free. <laughs> You're you're paying for it with your behavior and your personality and your location and your uh, and your likes and your dislikes. Well, and I think also an important point here is that this is okay as long as there's another choice. In other words, if if Google were the only game in town, if they really there, if they if they had a true monopoly and Android was the the only mobile operating system that that had any meaningful market share. Right. Well, I think we, we'd have a different value equation there. And, and perhaps Google would, would operate differently because they, they wouldn't have the competitive pressures that they have now to not yeah. go too far. Yeah, maybe they would sell your data at that point. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. that would be incredibly lucrative. And when I say sell your data, I mean, actually take the data that they've built about you and, and transfer that to a third party for money. Mm-hmm. Not sell your mm-hmm. data like I'm going to sell advertising to Dave because the advertiser wants specifically to reach Dave and people like Dave. Right. It's interesting to me, uh, this article points out this notion that security isn't privacy. And I think that's an important point because I think that's something a lot of folks overlook. They kind of group the two things together. And yeah. I think it's important to have a distinction in your mind that they're not the same thing. I, I agree 100%. That is a very important distinction that we all need to be aware of. Like I said earlier, security is I want to make sure who can who can access the device is an authorized user I want to make sure that they can't do anything remotely to to get access to it. These are the th- kind of things we think about as, as security. Privacy is uh, nobody knows my data but me. Right. And right. that is not what you're getting when you're getting an Android phone. Yeah. Yeah, and it's possible to have your, uh, your privacy compromised securely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, again, the article is uh, security isn't privacy, and you can have one without the other. It's over on Android Central. Uh, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.